0: Hello and welcome to Python Bites, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 213, recorded December 23rd, or Anthony, Anthony Shaw here, is this December 23rd or 24th? You tell me. It's the
1: 24th, it's Christmas Eve.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) In Australia, awesome. In the future. Yeah, 23rd uh, for us, uh, Brian and me, here in the US, uh, 2020 and... Yeah, this episode is brought to you by us. So we'll we'll talk more about that later. And uh, I'm Michael Kennedy, and I am Brian Arkin, and Brian, we got this special guest here, friend of the show, Anthony yeah. Shaw. Welcome, Anthony. Hi
1: hey there. Great to be on.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you here. Thanks for taking time out of your holiday.
1: Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. It started last night, so the Christmas holiday has now started. I'm off for two weeks. It should be lovely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
0: It should be very lovely. So you've got I. I think everyone on Twitter is jealous of all the pictures that you post when it's like cold and gray and you're like, oh yeah, there's this beautiful sunny beach here in the summer in Australia that I happen to be <laughs> suffering through.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. So, uh, yeah, it's middle of summer here and it's, um, yeah, beautiful weather and five minute walk to the beach. So yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Not too bad. Not too bad. Cool. Well, welcome to the show. Happy to have you here. I want to kick us off with this project called Django Ledger. And Django Ledger is, have you guys heard of this? No. Yeah, so Django Ledger, uh, you've probably heard of QuickBooks or FreshBooks or some of this accounting software, right? That you, you've you got to work with. You know, it allows you to do either, it's a desktop app or some kind of online thing where you create purchase orders, you keep track of who your customers are, when they owe you money, you accept payments, all that kind of stuff, right? So Django Ledger is something like that, built in Django, which I think is really cool because it could serve multiple purposes. One, you could take it and just run it for yourself or for your company and then customize it. Or you could actually use it to extend um, something, you know, build something on top of it, or maybe even offer services in it. Right? If you're like Stripe, maybe it makes sense to integrate some sort of plug in here because then you get 3% of everything that company <laughs> makes basically the way credit cards go, right? So it's a bookkeeping and financial analysis engine for the Django framework, which Pretty sweet. It's open source, and if you look through its features, it has a chart of accounts and basically customers' financial statements. Uh, it has multi-tenancy support. Um, it has stuff for operations, for investing. It has bills and invoices and bank accounts, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, pretty awesome, right?
2: Wait, multi-Tennessee? So is there like North Tennessee and South Tennessee, or that
0: that would be Dakota? I think Tennessee. There's only just one tenant. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, I think if you wanted to run this as like a platform-as-a-service type of thing, and you wanted to offer up... If you wanted to basically create your version of FreshBooks, I feel like um, that's what it would be.
1: If you're an, if you're an accountant um, that serviced yeah. multiple clients, you'd probably do it that way, I guess. It looks pretty cool. I thought I'd add... I, there's a project called Ledger, which is open source, but it's okay. it's not a... I don't think it's a Python project. I think it's written in something completely different. Um, so yeah, this is really cool and, and great, I think, for businesses who maybe have someone who can set this up. I'm guessing it's not available as a service. Do you have to kind of...
0: I don't think so. Especially, yeah, yeah. If you look at it, it says this project is under active development. It's not quite ready for production. So this comes to us from Miguel Sanda. I believe that's his project. And I would love to see like what the roadmap for stability is and like when this when this is ready, when it's coming out. But it's basically all Python and HTML and just a tiny bit of TypeScript, you know, like a salt level Um, stuff that's coming is like inventory management, cash flow, taxes, you know, all the fun stuff. And uh, Brian, even uh, BDD is coming.
2: I don't understand. (laughs) Behavior-driven, oh, behavior-driven development tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And so they're also actively looking for contributors, especially anyone with financial or accounting experience. (laughs) So if you're looking for some project to contribute to... Uh, you know, that'd be great. You could contribute to this one. It's not super well-known yet, but I thought I would shine a little bit of a light on it because it seems like it's a cool idea.
2: Well, it's even got invoicing and, and stuff too. So like, a, I think this is pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So what's up next for you, Brian? What do you got for us?
2: Uh, next up, oh, um, so another web sort of thing. But uh, uh, this, I ran across Flask Meld. So Flask
0: and Meld, I've never heard of this. So it's is a... this like, um, is it like a Vulcan thing from Star Trek?
2: Now the idea is like melding the the front end and the back end um, okay and uh the uh, it's a pretty cool there's a uh you should click on the uh, example article um uh but yeah that that first link right there
0: oh right here okay
2: yeah um there's a it's basically it's fairly simple interactive stuff where where that uh flat you know javascript gives you but it's um it's super fast and and it uh, just um like okay. You don't have to write the JavaScript code. So the um, the article in in this article talks about how um, this is from uh, Michael Abraham, I think it's Abrahamson. Hmm. Um, But he uh, he wanted to avoid writing JavaScript, so he wrote a whole bunch of JavaScript to 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 make this plugin. So it's a a Flask his first Flask extension. But you um, you kind of modify the the Flask templates to insert these elements. And then the elements just show up as like objects in uh, in Python, um, and you can program them like that. So all these all these elements are all implemented in Python. Uh, oh, cool! And the, the there's a little video on there, but there's a demo as well. So there's a there's a working example, and uh, and then the the code for the examples up on on GitHub as well, so you can play with it. One of the one of the fun parts um uh, in one of his working examples is uh the the dropdown for like a search. So if you if you start like predictive search, sort of thing. So if you start, t- the example shows states. So if you start typing states, um, it'll like start filling in this list of uh, states that you might mean. And it's like super fast. Um,
0: nice. Yeah. Apparently, uh, it says right here that it utilizes web sockets and Morphdom to create server side rendered HTML and swap out DOM elements without refreshing the page. That's the killer, actually.
2: Yeah. And it, um, and it, and it, he's nice enough. Uh, I think this is cool. He's saying that he, basically stole all the ideas from other people um, and put them together for this or standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Um, and there's a, there's a similar project called Django unicorn for Django people. I played with that a little bit. The um, there's a, there's the Django unicorn is the, the documentation site's amazing. It's, it's got a bunch of examples, um, but it, it seemed, I don't know if it's the, the server that it's hosted on or what, but the Django example seemed a little bit, Slower. It seemed like there was this round trip thing going on, whereas the the Flask example, uh Flask Meld was zippy enough that that would be completely sufficient for a lot of the applications. I'm I'm thinking of throwing in some interactive stuff. So yeah,
0: it's neat. yeah. This this is really neat. This this idea of components is pretty cool here, Anthony. What do you
1: think? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't really use Flask, but in in the Django world, um, quite a lot of components and stuff that I've pulled in and plugins to do interactive elements. Um, and each one is implemented completely differently, which is really frustrating, whether it's like a search box or a type ahead or like a multi-select field, just something that I need, which is um, not available in the standard forms model. And each one tends to have its own JavaScript uh, and its own collection of bugs. Um, And yeah, it is quite frustrating, to be honest, because you kind of think, oh, I don't need to write this from scratch in JavaScript. I'll use an extension that already exists out there. And then you kind of get stuck in, does it work in Django three? You know, what state is the JavaScript in? And then you read through the source code and you stumble across security issues. And it's like, (laughs) okay, I wasn't, you know, there's a, there's a line between it's easier to write it myself. And you end up, I end up just maintaining forks of all these extensions. And then, trying to get pull requests back into them to kind of fix things up. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see, I guess, a different model for doing it, uh, which, which you know, could be applied to to Django. So
0: This thing uh, brings me back to like the year 2001 web with ASP.NET web forms, which are like such a weird way to build web apps. They kind of like tried to mirror desktop apps, but you could put a little Ajax <laughs> tag onto like a section and just that part of the page would just become... Like, it would automatically refresh and interact differently. This gives me, like, kind of that feel, but, like, not old school web, but more modern web, which is nice.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I was thinking of it, and now a lot of people that are comfortable with, like, jumping into some JavaScript, this seems silly, I'm sure. But, for instance, like me, I never touch JavaScript. So, if I've got a little, and I've got, a like, a little Flask app that pulls up, um, like, test result data and it'd be great to just have a be able to get a little form there that says hey here's here's the version I want to see the results for and be able to pull that up and it it doesn't have to be pretty but um this way I could implement it without having to go in and learn J- javascript so I
0: like it yeah yeah and no, i i think this is super neat i'm with you anthony on tr- the trade off of grabbing some of these cool fl- plugins, Flask, Django, whatever, and go, okay, this is just now adding functionality. But then you've kind of got to understand its assumptions. When does it work? Like, why does it not quite work for what you're doing? It's it's always a trade-off. I, I usually go for the vanilla version of the web and just build it myself until it's like really clear that there's a big benefit.
2: Yeah, and they, they, you bring up an interesting point with the, the security concerns, especially anytime you've got uh, dealing with input fields and stuff, you've got to be careful with that. Yeah,
1: because yeah. they normally... Run queries in a database. So you've got to kind of audit these (laughs) things to make sure that they're not using raw queries and that they're not using weird templates and stuff like that.
0: Right. They better be parameterized queries and not little Bobby table type queries. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Wrong one. This one. So uh, what about what's next? Uh, Maybe they're using even bitwise operators in there, Anthony.
1: Possibly. Yeah. Um, So uh, my next uh, link is. Bitwise operators in Python uh, by Bartosz Zachniszki, um, and this one's really cool. Actually, I think if you've ever used uh, bitwise operators or seen them in the Python language, so this is where you'd use uh, the pipe symbol, the uh, less than less than, which kind of looks like two arrows, or right uh, right right, which is greater than greater than. Um, there's a XOR. Is is there another way to say XOR? I just use it XOR. Oh yeah, that's what I say as well. You know not say XOR or it. something. No, yeah. <laughs> um, which is the the hat sign. Uh, I can't what that's, that that symbol is called. The tilde is for not. Um, so yeah, these are basically used for specific types in Python, um, which support biz, bitwise operators. I like this article because um, they're rarely used in Python because you typically use types where you'd use a method to to do a lot of these things um, on. Most of the time, you wouldn't necessarily need to work with uh, data, which is binary. So you wouldn't necessarily need to do these things. But if you are working with binary data, they're super useful. Um, and it takes a bit of time to get your head around. So I've got a couple of examples. But um, yeah, this I, l- I love this tutorial because it actually it doesn't assume you know anything about this topic. Uh, it explains what the binary system is. Uh, and it uses these icons of uh hands like it uses emojis uh, kind of like a mini sign language to explain the 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 kind of the bytes and stuff like that um which is really <laughs> cool um so yeah, i i really like it for that reason it's really illustrative um and kind of takes you through a few concepts and then how you can use these special uh operators for some of the built-in types uh, python integers bit strings um you can also use them for byte arrays, which is really helpful. Uh, and then it goes into things like bit masks and stuff like that. So if you're ever working with any lower level data, uh, this is um, super helpful to understand. And also a little trick that I discovered a while ago was um, if you've ever used the enum um, built-ins. So enum is a, is a, in the standard library. And if you want to describe an enum, you basically create a class Uh, and inherit from an enum type, which is in the enum uh, package. Um, And you can uh, do a whole bunch of things and just represent things as enums in Python Uh, instead of other weird ways of doing it. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Introduced in Python 3.7, I think it was. Um, But there's a little-known feature in, um, in the enums, which is there's an int flag and a flag type. Uh, in, 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 an int flag is an enum, which you can represent as a flag, which means you can combine multiple, uh, of them. So for example, um, if you had a color, uh, enum and you had red, blue, and green, uh, you could represent white as being, uh, red, blue, and green, um, by combining the colors together. So nice. Wow. That's cool. Um, yeah, you probably wouldn't make a paint mixer in Python, but there's lots of things, um, f- uh, flags, for example, like if you're representing system flags um, or compiler flags or any other kind of flags, uh, this is really useful because it actually implements all the binary operators. Um, so, yeah, flag and int flag are super helpful types, which are built into the standard library. So, if yeah, if you ever find yourself doing something like this um, or using a package which has implemented its own weird version of this feature which is built in, then you can – upgrade it to this new syntax and then you're done. Yeah, nice. Tell me, what does this auto do? Oh, uh, so uh, in enums, um, if you're going to say, uh, you know, you need to make a representation of the enum name. Um, And if it's an int enum or an int flag, uh, you'd say, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Like, so if I save it to a file or pickle it or something, then it's, this is the number that it represents. So I can convert So if you converted the number one to your enum, it would know that red was one. So, you know, you could basically use it for storage or something. It's also really helpful, like if you're reading from XML files or JSON files or something, and there's like, uh, there's a field which is stored as an integer, but you know that it actually represents something a bit more logical, like uh, enumeration, um, then you you can do it that way. However, for flags, then because they support bitwise operators, they should follow the uh, the binary sequence. So 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, et cetera. Um, and once you get past uh, 1024, most people start to uh, forget. <laughs> um, so instead of working that all out in your head, you can just use auto, uh, which is a, a function built into the enum. Uh, and it will basically just work out what that value should be for you. Uh, so you I don't have too. to... Work it out in your head. It'll
0: let you like reorder stuff and not have to go, oh, now I want to, this one to go one, two, three. and Or I want to add another one, but in the middle and, and accidentally mess that up or whatever, yeah. Yeah,
2: I think yeah, I might cool. use those anyway just to just to indicate that the actual number isn't important. Um, It's just that they're, they're yeah, unique. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I if think if, you, if you don't
1: assign it, then I th- in enums, if you don't assign it, then it works. But with flags, you need to assign it to something. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah. Just for people listening uh, who don't necessarily see the code, the show notes, the idea is you create an enum class and you say like category equals just lowercase auto open close. That's the way that you sort of invoke this behavior. Also a couple questions from the listeners uh who are in the live stream. Anthony Lister says uh useful for microPython and hardware maybe? What do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you're I mean if you're working with um like embedded systems or anything. I mean, Brian, you're the expert on this. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to work with binary a lot. So um, yeah, this is super helpful because you can represent stuff which is uh, different states in the system or um, if you want to read uh, read inputs and stuff from multiple channels, you're going to need to use Bitwise operators. So both the Bitwise operators are really helpful as well as the, uh, the flags uh, enums. Yeah, and, and Brandon Rainer says Bitwise
0: always... Confuses me when I see it. I tend to roll my eyes back and ask why. I'm sure there's a reason, but uh, well, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind for me is, you know, you're thinking about storing stuff in memory. You know, if I wanted to store, say, a number or, or something like that, or you know, you put that into a Python number, that's like 28 bytes. But if you create an array of bytes, and you know the size of them are going to be, you know, packed into little bits, there, you know, like one to ten or something, a whole bunch, you could be way more efficient by, you know, creating little smaller containers and then bitwise boring them together and whatnot.
2: Yeah. Like bit fields, for instance, are are a really cool thing, but even just, just straight numbers with bitwise operators are, are important for hardware because you're like a lot of times you just have register access to something or you have memory or maybe mapped registers and you, you know, you just kind of read those out and there, there may be a whole bunch of data. So each bit might represent completely wildly different things. So you can't really just check for equality. You have to check, is this bit on or off? Um, or I need to set this bit and leave all the rest alone, things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Before we
0: get to our next item, let me just let you know this episode is brought to you by us, things that Brian and I are doing. And so one of the things we just launched over at Talk by then Training is our brand new Fast API course, which is a super cool new API framework that I think brings together a lot of the things that we've been proponents of. You know, things like Pydantic, Typense async and await, all those, they all come together really nice over there. So if you want to learn that, check that out. Uh, Brian has some book on PyTest, so uh, yeah, you can check that as well. Uh, links in the show notes. The next thing I want to talk about, though, is why you should use an ORM. Uh, here, there we go. So Anthony, Brian, what do you guys think? Raw SQL ORMs, what are your thoughts here?
2: Well, I've been using like uh, document databases lately, and I don't really need an ORM, so... I'm with you.
0: So over there, maybe the R is a D, at least if it's a document database, it's an object document mapper maybe. But yeah, I, I find being able to work with classes, like the way I think of it in Python to be, that's how I want my data to be. And just something else can figure out how the database has to break that apart into relationships and stuff. Super neat. You know, um, like SQL alchemy go and say, create, like if I had a, a user and the user had orders, like the, they might have an orders list on the, user class to create a new order you can just go to the user.orders.append that new thing and hit save commit changes and then boom you know it like figures out that has to be inserted and the relationship has to be said and all that anthony yeah.
1: what do you think um i use the django orm uh, quite a lot and uh really like it but uh, learning all the edge cases where it creates queries which are not super efficient but um yeah. so i guess there's pros and cons like if you were to write raw sql You know, sometimes if you know SQL really well, then you can write more efficient queries. However, uh, there are typically ways around that. Um, The N plus one problem in Django. The N plus plus. one is
0: the biggest problem for sure. Um, You want to describe the N plus one problem or take a shot at that?
1: Uh, Yeah, so if you um, sort of have a foreign key and you reference an entity, which might be a many-to-many relationship, um, and then you reference a property of it in the query, um, not actually, not in the query, but actually in the view, you you um you mentioned something or you look up a field which is part of a mapping to another table, Like
0: kind of like I described, like if you th- gave a user to the view and the, the view wanted to know about its orders, yeah, so more importantly, if you gave a list of users and it wanted to know about the orders for each of them, right? That's the real bad case,
1: yeah. So, I you had it for like, um, you know, which group people are in or like which team they're in or something, and, yeah. it, and it's just it's, it's it's the team ID, and then. You actually, want to show it on the table as the team name. So, for what ha- ends up happening is that for every row in the table, it looks it does another query to look up the team name, even though they're the same across the board. Whereas, if you're writing that in SQL, I'd hope um, you'd write you do that as a mm-hmm. as an outer join, but um, yeah, so an uh, inner sorry, not an outer join. Um, so yeah, OMs are really useful in that sort of thing, but they do have edge cases for n plus ones. Pretty sure you covered this one before, but there is an awesome tool called N plus one, which you can run in your test suite. So when you do all your integration tests with Django, it fails the test if it detects an N plus one query, um, which I use quite extensively. Um, I think Adam. uh, Oh,
0: I had not heard of this. I I mean, this is not such a problem for me because I work like Brian in document databases. uh, But to the extent that I work with like SQL Alchemy and stuff like. This is really this is the one you're talking about the one yeah yeah that's it yeah T-L-U-S-O-N-E,
1: yeah that one yeah so I add it it, I only add it in the test suite Uh, so you don't you don't really need to put this into production Uh, so you just you're assuming that you have tests Anthony yeah well that's probably a starting point isn't (laughs) it (laughs) Um, so or or if you've got your development environment you can just turn it on but it would Mm -hmm. um, yeah it basically it would print a warning and stuff like that. However, there is a config option that says that it can raise an exception if it detects one, um, which is awesome because when you run all your tests, um, it will fire off um, uh, and fail the test if it detects this type of query. Uh, and the workaround in Django is actually really simple. You just add another um, function to the to the chain, um, the the query command, basically, which indicates that I'm going to use this field in this other table. So it kind of pre-looks up. Right, right. Um, do the join or sub-query load or whatever it needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. um, And the other thing about IRMs that I really like is the the migration ability. Like, it's fine when you initially design a, a, a system. You could, yeah, fine. You can write your own custom SQL queries and stuff. But, you know, within a week or two, you've added like five extra fields. And actually that one field you added now needs to be a different type or... You know, databases are not static things, like database structures mm. change all the time um, in, a, in a real application. So that becomes an absolute nightmare if you've handcrafted all your SQL, um, especially if you don't have tests. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, for, for different database engines, there's different ways to do this. Um I mean, SQL server like has DA- uh, DAX, so you can do DAC packs and DAC pack migrations, but most of the other database systems don't have that. Um, whereas if you're using the ORM, then, um, you know, Django and Flask and stuff would create the migration for you. Um, and you're kind of pretty sure that you can add fields as an, as you wish uh, without necessarily breaking things, or you can add types and you can describe what to do with the old ones. Um so, But I think it saves so much time in just working with a li- live system where you're actually constantly making modifications to the, to the table structures and stuff.
0: And maybe you have different developers at different stages or you want to go back in the brand. You want to say, I'm going to go back here and then work on this version of the app at this stage. You want to be able to go to just run the migrations and get to the right structure. Yeah, it's, I find it to be super, super helpful. I mean, there are times where you, know, you want to get 100,000 records back from the database and an ORM doesn't make sense. But to me, I feel like, you know, you should 80, 90% of the time use an ORM and then there's that little edge case where something slightly different maybe needs to happen. But you shouldn't start there because there's that 10% or 5% chance.
1: Yeah, that most ORMs give you the ability to write a raw query. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, you should also check those raw queries for SQL injection. Um and I do have a tool for that. <laughs> so, yeah, if you if you want to, uh, you can yeah. run it through the Python security thing that I've built, um, which will scan your code and spot where you've used the raw SQL uh, functions in the Flask ORM and the Django ORM, and it will see if there's anything in them which is pretty uh, le- likely to leave you subject to a SQL injection.
0: Yeah, is that built into your uh, PyCharm security plugin?
1: Yes. Yeah. It maybe. Is.
0: Yeah, I want to just mention this come like this conversation, although not exactly. We didn't pull that much out of it, but comes from an article I wanted to highlight called "Why Should I? Uh, Why Should You Use an ORM Object-Relational Mapper?" Written by Karim. Uh, I'll leave that in the show notes. There's a bunch of details that walks you through it. So uh, I wanted to cover uh, cover this so people, if they're having this debate on their team or they're not sure which way to go or they're they're new and they're like, "What are all these funky acronyms?" About you know, they can check that out. Uh, there's there's the obligatory. Little Bobby Tables joke in there, right? You gotta, gotta go with that. This is what your, your plugin is supposed to detect is uh, this cool XKCD. Oh, cool, if you're not on the receiving end.
2: Um, one of the things I'd like to bring up around ORMs is that like a lot of the ORM tutorials assume that you know SQL. Um, and I'd like to see more tutorials on how to use an ORM and how to use it correctly without any SQL examples.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know classes in Python, yeah, here's your way. You don't have to know SQL. Yeah, I mean, I, I
2: thought that was the point: is that you can think in objects yeah. instead of in SQL. So, yeah, why do I gotta learn SQL in order to understand the tool? Just sure. Saying.
0: Sure. Uh, another thing that you can turn on that's helpful for the N plus one problem, at least with SQL Alchemy, you can go to the engine when you create it, and you can say uh, echo. I think it's echo equals true, and it'll echo every single underlying SQL command sent to the database. You can do something in SQL Alchemy and it'll say, here's what the actual thing is. And if you've written your code well and you've done the right join stuff, you'll just see like a couple of entries for each <laughs> page or interaction you're having. If you've done it wrong, you'll see your your output just scream by full of these things. You're like, ah, oh, there's one of these problems. So that's that's a, a easy way as well. Is, that, yeah, is
2: there like a test way to like, like for instance, um to check to see how many, for a certain test sequence, how many uh, database interactions you've done?
1: Yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, there is in there is in um, Django, you can kind of hack a bit of middleware, which um, kind of catches SQL queries and stuff like that. Um, it's not built in, but you can write it. I think I've got a code sample somewhere that does that. Um, and just say how many queries this page executed. Obviously it depends on, that's why it's important to see the database first with test data, because, you know, if you just run it on an empty database, then <laughs> typically, you know, fine. or you've got like one row or something, then it's it's going to be like, yeah, it's fine. But then when you deploy it to production, like it's actually running thousands of queries for every page. Yeah. Then
0: um, you end up with what you got in the United States when we tried to roll out the, the healthcare.gov and the entire system went down and yeah.
2: Like, like they yeah, whatever. They knew it was going to be <laughs> the entire country using it and they didn't load test it.
0: Exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, one more thing, a uh, comment from Mateus. Uh, it's also useful uh, when using Django to add the Django debug toolbar or Django Silk to be aware of what queries are going on. And also I would add for Pyramid, there's a Pyramid debug toolbar, and you can actually see the underlying queries and how many of them there are and the timing. It's it's really nice, those things. All right. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to the next one. Sticking with the database stuff, Brian.
2: Definitely sticking with databases um, and SQL. So uh, this one's from Simon Wilson. And uh, he's got a tool called, uh, a library dataset. called, C- well, yeah, sure, Dataset. But uh, SQLite Utils, um, this is, uh, it's developed as part of data- the Dataset project, but it's um, it's usable by anybody that uses uh, SQLite, U- SQLite. And uh, it's yes. a couple things. It's a command line utility, which um, a lot of databases do have a command line way to enter. To, to query the database, but I don't know if SQLite does. Um, but this is a pretty cool command line. You can interrogate, analyze tables, and dump things, and do all sorts of stuff. Um, and even search, uh, it's pretty useful and pretty simple examples. Mm-hmm. Um, the One of the things I really like, though, is the, um, the API that he has. So there's a Python API to, I mean, you can use uh, like SQL Alchemy, for instance, uh, to interact with SQLite, but um, another way to do it is to use the SQLite utils as a as an API for for SQLite, and it's a, a pretty clean, simple um, uh, interaction. And I think that's it's something I'm, I want to try because it looks like a I, I do need to get back into some SQL da, SQL database work, and uh, I think this would help a lot.
0: Yeah, this comes from the dataset found. Is like one of the foundational tools from dataset? this project that he's working on, which is really interesting. It's like empowering data-driven journalism and data exploration across all these different data sources by converting them all down to SQLite databases. And then once they're there, you can explore them in interesting ways. So there's like Twitter to SQLite, uh, various other things to SQLite, Gmail to SQLite, and then you can like explore all these different things. Um, like GeoJSON to SQLite. Uh, What else have we got here? There's just tons and tons of these things that plug into other stuff and then gets in this common format. And then he also has this cool tool called Dog Sheep, which builds on top of those databases that creates like a personal search engine for your life. So you could like plug in Twitter, you could plug in uh, your iPhotos library, you could plug in your Gmail. And then there's a search engine that just says search that. So it's like one of the foundational building blocks of like, how do I get everything... from its original source into sequel light. Pretty cool.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: So, I need, uh, Anthony, what do you think?
1: uh I'm actually really interested about the next um link on his blog, which says, I commissioned an oil painting of Barbara Streisand's cloned dogs. <laughs> <laughs> <What>?
0: <laughs> it's really nice, actually. I, I kind of like it. Oh, I thought it was do a joke. He actually did the- For gazing the tombstone of the dog that they are. Uh, yeah. Okay. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what it has to do with SQL like, but no, it's, it's yeah. pretty cool. I think, um, yeah, more tools for and uh, journalists and stuff as they start to work with data. and Data becomes more readily available, or at least there's more of it. So, um, yeah, and people Simon, aren't necessarily, yeah, don't necessarily have the technical skills to work with massive data sets and stuff like that. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to, um, yeah, use some t- some of these tools for sure. Uh,
0: Simon Wilson was one of the co-founders of. Django. I had him on TalkPython recently, but it's not published yet. And we talked about data set and dog sheep. And there's there's just a lot of interesting stuff. And one of the stories that he tells, so people can listen to the episode, but he has a dog, which may be this uh, commissioned thing. He's like really got this dog that has a Twitter. It, the dog has its own Twitter account. So for example, some of the interesting stuff that he did was his dog in the Twitter account will tweet when it goes to the veterinarian, like how much it weighs and stuff. And then it will tweet pictures when it's on a walk. And he was able to do things like we create a graph over time of his dog's weight by just doing a SQL query against the dog's Twitter account that got pulled in. Like all sorts of weird connections of like pulling data together that you just couldn't imagine. So uh, yeah, anyway, really, really neat stuff there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. People would check that out. Um, Anthony, you want to wrap it up with a a talk that is very uh, work from home ish uh conferences very work from home i should talk from there maybe
1: yeah yeah so um my next one is from the pajamas conference um which happened a couple of weeks ago um and this is yeah lots of online conferences happening at the moment um which i kind of sign up for and look at the you know the talk list and think oh great that'll be really interesting and then Never actually get around to watching any of them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of struggling with this online conferencing thing. Like I, The idea is really cool. The concept is cool, but the practicalities of it, um, yeah, especially like, I don't know if it's different in our house, but um, the, the conference ran over a weekend, and I just wanted, you know, maybe an hour or so to watch some of the talks and things. But just sitting down on the couch and turning the TV on, putting it on YouTube, and then sitting and watching talks, and it was like the kids isn't making so much noise. My wife's mm-hmm. like, why are you watching TV? There's loads of stuff to do. And I'm like, no, but I'm, this isn't. And <laughs> is, then.
0: Uh, is this work? It actually is work. I'm sure it is. In, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It looks like work. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> so yeah. I see pajamas. I,
0: there's pajamas up there. This doesn't make this doesn't feel like work.
1: Yeah. And I definitely wasn't in my pajamas. I had to get dressed because it was 10 in the morning. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know. I, there's, I, I know I'm, kind of talked about this and a couple of other people said they're having similar challenges with these online conferences. Just like, where do you fit them in? Um, And if you actually go to a conference, it's like, you've got, you've got an excuse that this is more, this is like my time is now set out. Whereas if I, if I was to say, I'm going away for a few days to a conference, that's fine. But if I try to attend that conference at home, it's like, that's not, Yeah, yeah. that's completely I'm going to lock myself (laughs) in my
0: room and watch TV for two days. Uh, I'll be back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that the same
1: same story? Yeah, someone at work actually suggested that we have like a a work hotel sort of thing where people can attend virtual conferences. (laughs) Um, Where, you know, especially if you're on, if if they're late at night or they're in weird time zones and stuff. So even if it's just in your local city, you can go and stay there. (laughs) So you can at at least dedicate the time. Uh, Anyway, so Pyjamas, which I really wanted to attend, I managed to get through half a talk uh, so, <laughs> and then I watched the other half like a week later um, so that was not very successful um, however the talk was brilliant so I wanted to uh, share a link it was called What the Struct um, by Zachary Anglin and it's talking about the uh, the struct library which is built into uh, the standard library I didn't um, really realize there was a struct library right? like there is an yeah. array
0: library that says this will hold floats contiguously Same thing for structs, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, Brian was talking about data classes before we went live, actually, but, um, you know, data classes are really cool, like, if you wanted to represent uh, interesting structures and stuff like that. Um, ORMs are really important for this sort of thing. But if you're working with binary data, um, reading the binary data and then converting it into native Python types, um, often, you know, you do C for that sort of thing, and in C, you just, declare a struct and just say there's these fields and you can just read and write that into binary uh, structures um which is kind of built in but sometimes you need to do that in python if you're working with actually i've got some examples but um so this explains what the struct library is and it also has this macro language for describing what the underlying type is um and then you can kind of like pack and unpack it basically so you can say here's my uh, here's my class or whatever and here's the fields and the underlying binary structure is a um you know a float a 32-bit integer or a binary um boolean or you know it may be a, a, a ascii string or something um so yeah there's basically all these like little uh, characters um for packing and unpacking data um so yeah it is really helpful uh if you're getting into this topic of working with binary data structures or is something that you've wanted to do. Um, uh, I recommend if you're on a Mac using a tool called Synalize It um, or SPY um which is basically a GUI for working with binary data. And it has um, a database of grammars. Um, so you can basically like open a compiled executable or you know something like that. Um, And it would be like, oh, I know what this format is. And it would then just represent it in actually something more understandable. And you can edit fields and hack around with stuff. Um, It's great if you're doing capture the flags um, or if you're doing some hacking for good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's also really cool if you want to edit files, which are not in a, a human readable format, if they're in a binary format. Um, And in the database, they've got a whole bunch of examples, including a lot of save game formats. (laughs) So this is actually how I got into this topic. Uh, Originally, it was when I was a lot younger playing games and stuff. And I'm like, what is this file? And then, you know, trying to echo it on the shell and it would be like, oh, that's all garbled." And then realizing it's all in binary and then, you know, trying to figure out if you open it up in a hex editor or something, what it is. And then, oh, if I change this field, then I can give myself more gold or, I can make my character invincible or <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> so basically like so this, hacking this the game by modifying the save And the boss game. would
0: be so much easier if I had 100,000 hit points or whatever. So let's yeah. just increment that number.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think modern games are a bit, they kind of put protections around the save game because there's a lot more online aspect, but definitely older games. You can, you can hack the save games and most of them give yourself whatever it is that you feel like. Um, so yeah, yeah, understanding binary structures is really helpful on the struct. Um, you can even automate it using the struct much. <laughs> yeah. Nice.
0: Yeah. There's also some good comparisons between uh, like the values of structs and then tuples and name tuples and data classes and Pydantic. So there's sort of a spectrum that gets covered there as well.
2: Yeah. Interesting. goes in line well with the, uh, the bit manipulation t- topic you were talking about. It's like, for instance, um, uh, very structured, uh, structs <laughs> are, um, <laughs> are very important for like message uh, systems, like communication systems. Uh, we have very defined uh, fields within each, uh, with, w- within the, you know, we've got 128 bit sequence or a thousand bits in there. Uh, each bit is a, a specifically assigned to different things. Um, and those are, yeah, we, you, de- you definitely don't want to just like hope that it's right. You have to put it exactly where you need it. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Like little network packet headers and things like that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm using this at the moment because I'm writing a disassembler, so <laughs> it's quite <laughs> helpful. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, the, you're, you're definitely doing some low-level stuff these days. Uh, so I guess that's our, our main items for today. Brian, you got some uh, some extras you want to share?
2: Yeah, we got uh, poked by the Python Software Foundation that we should probably plan some events um, because we're, we're, we've got a meetup, the uh, Python PDX West meetup, but... I I can't access the building that we normally held it in and nobody would come anyway. Right. So um, we're doing virtual. So we've got uh, January 14th. We're going to do, we're going to start seeing what it's like to do a virtual thing. And I thought, you know, normally when we did the meetups before it was in the evening uh, I don't really want to hang out in the, in the evening doing this, but a lunchtime would be fine. So, I thought like a lunch a lunch and learn thing, so we're gonna try that, see what it's. Yeah, it's like.
0: perfect. Being virtual, you could just do it during lunch, right? You don't have to go, okay, well, I'm gonna drive out, you know, fight the traffic or whatever, right?
2: Yeah, and I don't have to convince my boss to buy a bunch of pizzas. Um, so yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. All right. I got a couple of extras as
0: well. I ended up doing a fast API webcast with the folks over at Jetbrain, so people can check that out. If they want to uh, go learn more about that. And then also, going to close my our notes here. But I'll get them back. Uh, Brian, you go next.
2: I gotta pull this up somewhere else. Uh, I just went, so let's. i uh, oh, sorry, you. Yeah, you got, go. you got. You got.
0: Yeah, Anthony, What What are you up to these days? What extra you got to share, folks?
1: Uh, yeah. So um, I'm going to be starting at Microsoft in February, which is big news for me. Yeah, um,
0: congratulations. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um. So yeah, I'm going to be the Python developer advocate working with uh, Nina Zakarenko. So Nina's the uh, the current Python developer advocate and I'm going to be, yeah, helping out. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to it and working with a bunch of smart people over at Microsoft. So yeah, all things Python. Um, do you know any
0: particular projects you're working on?
1: So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be, I'm not on the engineering team. Um, and I'm definitely not working on pigeon. This has got nothing to do with pigeon. (laughs) Um, contrary to the rumor, I guess, Oh,
0: you were um, hired on Pigeon. That's what I heard. Come on.
1: Yeah. I, and yeah. And definitely not. Um, so yeah, this is kind of a side, a side thing. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of uh, definitely the uh, Azure platform and like using Python and Python working with Azure and on Azure um, uh, VS code and the Python extension and just the tooling in and around that um, as well as the Python ecosystem with Microsoft products in general, or Microsoft technologies Um and Python yeah. in general. So uh, all things Python. And yeah, really looking forward to starting on the 1st of Feb. Um, and yeah, I have a long list of things that I want to uh, want to get stuck into. So. Yeah, I'm guessing
0: that's remote, not just now, but permanently, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's, su- that's super exciting. Um, but that does mean, Brian, that he'll be somewhat in our neighborhood more often. I suspect he'll come up to Seattle and Redmond sometimes when that happens again, when the world is let loose.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I expect so. When uh, we're not even allowed to lead the country at the moment. So. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll, up, we're up, we'll see
2: you in the northwest once in a while. So be, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, when
1: when uh, maybe twenty twenty two. Yeah, but twenty thirty, we'll see.
0: We'll, we'll definitely see <laughs> you twenty thirty. No problem. Also, uh, from, <laughs> from from uh, the YouTube stream, Piling says, "Congrats, Anthony, on the new job." Thanks, PyLang. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. we should
2: have like a like a web page with like a, a graphic to show like how many like well-known Python people there are and the like maybe a Death Star, Microsoft sucking all the Python people into Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the they're pretty
1: evenly distributed.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. it's all good. All
0: right. Well, I feel like uh, might be time to wrap this up with a joke, you think? Sure. Yeah. So uh, this one came to us over Twitter from Lars and there was a, apparently a question someone named Kate Maddox asks, what's the best programming language for coding your own therapist? You know, like we're all stuck at home. People are a little depressed, have social anxiety or just anxiety about the world in general. And Wes comes along with a, an appropriate answer. What do you guys think here? Python, of course, is the language. So you can call it TheraPy, P-H-E-R-A dot P-Y. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I think it's pretty much on par for our standard jokes, though. Brandon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, might be better than average actually. Yeah. Yeah. It could be better than that. You need a little drum kit in the background, Brian, that you can.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Some symbols. We'll
1: set you up with Uh, a little. It's a business
2: expense. I'll totally get a (laughs) drum kit. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Brian, thanks as always. And Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Yeah. You bet. And everyone listening, see you next time.